presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Well, hello, and this is Pastor Adam again, and um, I wanted to share with you all what I we had the privilege of this past weekend. Uh, I'm recording this now. It's Thursday, the 23rd of March, 2023, and, and I'm going to share with you what I, I was asked to speak at a Messianic Jewish uh, congregation, and uh, I just want to share with you because I think it's very fruitful, and I think it's really good for, for Christians to hear this as well. And uh, let's go to the Lord, though, before we begin, and, and just join along with me as we sing the Lord's Prayer. We say the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So yes, I was asked, and this Shabbat in for the for the Jewish people is a, one of those uh, one of the important ones because it's it's the last Shabbat. It's it's before the month of Nisan. It's it's called the Shabbat Hokadesh, uh, and uh, then the month of Nisan started last night uh, at sunset on Wednesday, the twenty second of March. Uh, Nisan began. So right now, as I'm recording, this is day one of the month of Nisan. And on that first time this was going on way back when the Moses is in Egypt dealing with Pharaoh to release the Hebrews from their slavery, their bondage, God presents the first commandment on how to sanctify the new moon for the onset of Rosh Kodesh. And thus Nisan becomes the first month of the Jewish religious year which is starts, you know, right now. Today is the first of Nisan. And the Torah study that the, they, uh, the Jews uh, were instructed to study for this past Saturday uh, was in, it starts with the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 1, 1 through 2, 16. That's what they're studying this week. And that's what I was asked to talk about. And as I was preparing for this, I was reminded about when Jesus first called his disciples. One of the first was Philip, who, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now, Philip was so inspired by his encounter with Jesus that he goes out and immediately finds Nathanael and tells him about Jesus. And and Nathanael responds to Philip, Nazareth, can anything good from there, good come from there? And, you know, Philip didn't argue with Nathanael. He just said, Come and see. Well, Nathaniel went with Philip and he really wasn't expecting too much. However, after meeting Jesus, Nathaniel realized that Jesus was much better than he had expected and within minutes was calling Jesus the Son of God. So Nathaniel would spend the next three plus years with Jesus and his life, of course, was never the same. Well, as as we were doing this on uh Saturday, I was telling the people, you know, as we begin this study on Leviticus, many people, and you listening right here, may feel the same way. I think you likely will, like kind of like Nathaniel. 
And you might be thinking, Leviticus? Can anything good and practical come from this book? Uh, A somewhat cynical analyst observed Leviticus is is a dust heap containing a single pearl. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you weren't aware of that, that's where Jesus quotes from the book of Leviticus. That's where it is in the Torah. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. A casual reading of Leviticus may cause us to feel that Leviticus is the epitome of Old Testament irrelevance. I mean, and it's mainly because of Leviticus is full of ritual and sacrifices that have not been for, performed for nearly 2,000 years. I mean, it goes, this book goes into great detail describing a priesthood that no longer exists and feasts and holidays that are no longer observed. All of these factors are probably why Leviticus is arguably the least read book of the Bible. And frankly, it's a shame because Leviticus is a Christian book. The Bible of Jesus is contained in this book. Are you aware that more than 40 New Testament references to Leviticus have been identified already? There may be more. So what may appear on the surface to be a barren wasteland proves to be a gold mine to anyone with the patience to plunge its depths. So, you know, as we begin this, uh, this discussion about Leviticus, I invite you to come and see. Come and see what treasures God has for us as we study this book. So, you know, I, I was wondering if anyone here, if anyone listening has ever felt distance from God. I wonder if any of us have ever wanted to see or hear God. I wonder if any of us have ever struggled with loneliness, been been riddled with sin, burdened by despair, overwhelmed by situations, and just plain worn out by relationships. Well, as we reflect and remember that, you know, we're made in the image of God, We were created and made by him to have a close relationship with him. And when fellowship is broken, we are incomplete and we need restoration. Well, communion with the living creator of the world is the very essence of worship. Perhaps that's why an entire book called Leviticus is devoted to worship. You know, after Israel's dramatic exit from Egypt to, you know, the nation was camped at the foot of Mount Sinai for for two years to listen to God. It basically covers from Exodus 19 to Numbers chapter 10. That's a two-year period if you look at that. This was a time for, you know, resting, for teaching, for building, for meeting with God face-to-face. That redemption recorded in the book of Exodus is the foundation of cleansing and worship and service that we will find in the book of Leviticus now. The overwhelming message of the book of Leviticus is the holiness of God. And a question that this generation after generation is asked is, how can an unholy people approach a holy creator? Well, When you break it down, it's not complicated at all. It's very simple. The answer is to to approach a whole, first sin must be dealt with. The word sin is used 90 times in the book of Leviticus, more than any other book in the entire Bible. And it's used 
over four times as much in Leviticus than it is in Genesis and Exodus combined. Sin in the Hebrew is the word kite. Remember like from Exodus that God was concerned with getting his people out of Egypt and releasing them from the bondage of the slavery they were encountering in Egypt. Well, in the book of Leviticus, we will now find God concerned with getting Egypt out of his people. God was concerned with dealing with his people's problem of sin. And this problem of sin is not something new. Ever since Adam and Eve started the process in the garden, mankind has continually throughout the years sought to do things their own way, and they have openly rebelled against and rejected God's way. As the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, we sin when we fall short, when we don't measure up to what God expects us to be and what God expects us to do. Sin separates us from God, and it's everyone's issue. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned. There's not a one of us that is free from this. It does not matter who you are, what you do. All of us are guilty of sinning against the, uh, the creator of the world. And as we dig in now to these opening few verses of Leviticus, we are given instructions for offering sacrifices, which were the active symbols of repentance and obedience. Let's, let's just read Leviticus 1.1 and 1.2. And I read from the New King James Version. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. So whether this was, as, as you know, we read on, really I'm summarizing here, whether this offering, this sacrifice was bulls, grain, goats, sheep, birds, uh, you know, the sacrificial offering had to be the best with no defects, no bruises. These are the picture of the ultimate sacrifice to come, Yeshua, the perfect lamb of God. Yeshua has come and opened the way to God by giving up his life as the final sacrifice in our place. True, like, worship and oneness with God began as we uh, confess our sin and accept Jesus as the only one who can redeem us from the sin and help us approach God. And also note that Leviticus, uh, it picks up where the book of Exodus ended, which is at the mount of, uh, the foot of Mount Sinai. That they had just, the Hebrews had just been instructed in the, at the end of Exodus, you know, they had completed the tabernacle after all the instructions God was given. And now God is going to teach the people how to worship at the tabernacle. And as already stated, we may be tempted to dismiss Leviticus as a record of bizarre rituals of a different age if we look at this only through our lens or through our culture, our current culture. But the things that we will read and study here should assist us in understanding its practices that they made sense to the people of that day and offered very important insights for us into the very nature of God and his character. Something I think many today have missed altogether in studying scripture is, is we, we don't do a very good job either by the instructions of the, the teaching or the individuals themselves of studying these scriptures through the lens of the writer and the people in that culture at that time. Too often, many have deduced that it's irrelevant because Messiah has arrived. Jesus came. But if you 
and I don't grasp the seriousness and understand the foundation, your entire Christian house will fall. It will fall if you just start at the New Testament. You have to understand the old and dig into the old. The foundation sets the table for the new. Now, I'm, I'm very aware, I get it, that animal sacrifices seem obsolete and repulsive to many people today. But this was used to teach people about faith, that sin needed to be taken very seriously. See, when, when people think about this through, if you have a pet, okay? When people saw the sacrificial animals being killed, they were sensitized to the importance of their sin and guilt. Our culture's casual attitude towards sin ignores the cost of sin and the need for repentance and restoration. Although many of these rituals recorded in the Torah and specifically here in Leviticus were designed for the culture of that day, their purpose was to reveal a high and holy creator who should be loved, obeyed, and worshiped. All of this that God is teaching regarding the laws and sacrifices are intended to bring out true devotion of the heart. That's the message to let soak into our bone and marrow today. And these ceremonies and rituals were the best way for the Hebrews to focus their lives on the Lord. That's why you and I need to read this. That's why we need to reread it. That's why we need to teach it. That's why we need to study it. These are the words of the most high God. And they're not there just to sit on a piece of paper. They're for us to abide by them, to live by them. Now, often I've heard this question. Is there a difference between a sacrifice and an offering? Well, in this reading, as we study Leviticus, I would contend that the words are interchangeable. I mean, usually a specific sacrifice is called an offering like burnt offering, grain offering, fellowship offering. So in general, offerings are also referred to as sacrifices. I just wanted to talk about that briefly. The point is that each person offers a gift to God by sacrificing it on the altar. Remember that in the Torah, in the Old Testament, the sacrifice is the only way to approach God and restore relationship with him. And the variety of sacrifices made them more meaningful because each one related to a specific life situation. Sacrifices would be given in praise and worship and thanksgiving, as well as for forgiveness and fellowship. And, and it may appear obvious to some of us. And, and I apologize ahead of time, but it needs to be said again and again and again that here in Leviticus, God is teaching his people to the significance and emphasis of sacrifices, of offerings. It's not to be taken lightly. This is very serious stuff. Since the creation, the Lord has made it crystal clear that sin separates the created from the creator and those who sin deserve to die. But our merciful and gracious God has designed sacrifices and offerings as a way to seek forgiveness and restore a relationship with him. And from the very beginning, he would come into our world and die to pay the penalty for all humanity. But before the Lord made this ultimate sacrifice of his son, he instructed people to kill animals as sacrifices for sin. And when bringing these offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, each individual was was supposed to, must have, in other words, an attitude 
of repentance. That that sacrifice, that offering was the outward symbol, if you will, of that attitude, while, while the inward part was inside each one of us of doing the repentance. And they kind of, they work together. And, and don't forget this. This, this. this is very critical. Neither the sacrifice or the offering nor repentance by the individual actually caused the sin to be taken away. The Lord alone is the only one who can forgive sin. Fortunately for you and I, forgiveness is part of the nature of our God. Hallelujah. This this act of offerings and sacrifices are a critical part of the growth of each one of us. Okay? This can't be overlooked or dismissed. There is no shortcut. I, I could think of a few things obeying the Lord's instructions for offerings and sacrifices teach us. One is that the best spotless animal off, you know, offering teaches us a reverence for a holy Lord. In other words, we don't give God our leftovers. We give him the best. And it's not that the amount of it matters. It's that the quality of whatever it is, that's what's important. Another thing is that exact obedience teaches total submission to the Lord's laws. A third point is a sacrifice and offering of an animal of great value showed the high cost of sin and demonstrated the sincerity of the person's commitment to the Lord. Another point is that by their very nature, sacrifices and offerings required the use of all the senses in worship, which would further encourage a person's whole response to the Lord. This, the history, folks, that we read in the Torah, the history we read in the Bible, the history that we read about all the different cultures and societies and nations up to this very moment, all share a similar trait about humanity. Without fail, every single time people would get swelled heads and become overconfident in their culture, including the Hebrews. I mean, maybe it's especially the Hebrews. Isaiah the prophet warned them over and over, as did every one of the prophets warned the Hebrew people to humble themselves. Isaiah in chapter 48, for instance, prophesied about the people feeling overconfident because they lived in Jerusalem where the temple of the Lord resided. They justified this vanity because of their heritage, right? Their city, their temple. But folks, that's a false security because they did not, they revealed that they weren't dependent on the Lord. Well, how about you and I today? I mean, folks, do you feel secure because you go to church or that you live in a Christian country? Remember that your heritage, buildings, nations cannot give us a relationship with the Lord. We must truly depend on him personally with all our hearts and all our mind. Let's just take a quick look at Isaiah here, specifically Isaiah chapter 48, verses 17 and 18. And again, I read from the New King James Version. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. (laughs) I mean, this is the very same pattern a loving parent would emulate to teach and direct their kids. We, We 
should listen to the Lord because peace and righteousness come to us as we obey his word. We want our children to obey us because we know it will bring peace and and righteousness to them. It will show them the way. As we follow the Lord, we should teach our children. I mean, refusing to pay attention to the Lord's commands invites punishment and threatens the peace and righteousness. Just like if our children fail to obey us, it invites punishment. It threatens their peace. Now, There are a couple other items I want to point out to take note of when reading and studying this week's scriptures in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through, and then Leviticus 2 through 16. That's the reading that was scheduled for this week in the, for the Torah. First off is the direction regarding grain offerings, and specifically, I want to point out the instructions to make, bake, or cook these offerings or these sacrifices, they were to do this without yeast. An absence of yeast symbolized the absence of sin. Now, why was no yeast allowed in the grain offerings? Well, yeast is a bacterial fungus. It's a mold and is therefore uh, an appropriate symbol for sin. In other words, I don't think this is complicated at all, but it's, it's kind of obvious to me. See, yeast grows in bread dough just as sin grows in a life. A little yeast will affect the whole loaf, just as a little sin can ruin a whole loaf. Jesus expanded on this very analogy by warning about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to to the disciples and to the people. It's recorded in the Gospels, okay? Now, a second point to bring out when reading uh, Leviticus 1.1 through Leviticus 2.16 is the emphasis on seasoning with salt. The grain offerings were seasoned with salt as a reminder of the people's covenant with God. Salt was a symbol used here in the word of God of the Lord's activity in a person's life because here, salt penetrates, salt preserves, salt aids in healing. See, the Lord wants to be active in our lives. We need to submit and bow to his will and now allow him to be part of us, which penetrates every aspect of our lives. It preserves us from the evil all around that the, you know, the devil's prowling around looking to see who he can devour. And it heals our sins and shortcomings. Hallelujah. So I just wanted to point that out about yeast and salt. Now, in the New Testament, I wanted to bring out something that kind of correlates to what we're talking about here. It's in Ephesians chapter five. And specifically, here's Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two from the New King James Version. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Okay, so, uh, you know, I can't speak. I'm just telling, for me and Candace, we're grandparents now and it, it really is quite a blessing. I mean, our old, oldest grandchild is almost three. It's a little boy. And uh, we have a granddaughter who's one and a half now. And we have two more uh, grandchildren that are going to be born in uh, May and June. And so we're going to have four grandkids here very shortly. And, you know, specifically, whenever we're around our grandson, I mean, I'm reminded about the things that we are talking about right here in these scriptures in Ephesians 5 and, and a little bit earlier, too. Like, uh, what, what I'm getting at is we're told to be imitators of the Lord. 
Just as children will imitate their parents, we should imitate Jesus. His great love for us led him to sacrifice himself so that we might love. I mean, and specifically about our grandson, what I mean is, you know, anybody that age, when they're that, they start learning words and everything, they're little parrots. They'll repeat what they hear. And Candace and I have, you know, we live through this with ours, so we're kind of where it is. More of our kids and, you know, our uh, daughter-in-law, they got to kind of watch their, they just got to be careful because the little Little people, man, they'll repeat what you say. I mean, and we should be, you know, and, and of course to focus on, you know, our love for others should be that same kind of love, a love that goes beyond affection, but it also goes to self-sacrificing service. And any parent knows that that's what you're doing for these little people, you know? And then so, and as if you read on in Ephesians chapter five, like basically Ephesians five chapter, chapter five, verses one through nine, I've run into a lot of people that get very confused uh, when they read that because they kind of use it, I think, inaccurately because people are, get confused about who they should be hanging around with because they'll use Ephesians five, those first nine verses uh, and say, well, we're not supposed to be in contact with people that aren't Christians or that are doing things wrong. Well, I'm just here to tell you, the Apostle Paul did not forbid contact with unbelievers, as some people claim. Jesus, Jesus teaches his followers to befriend sinners and lead them to him. What Paul is saying here is, do not make it a lifestyle, okay, of those who make excuses for bad behavior and recommend its practice to others, regardless if they're in the congregation or not in the congregation. What Paul's bringing attention to is, these types of people can quickly pollute the congregation and endanger its unity and purpose. We, folks, let me be perfectly clear. We must befriend unbelievers if we are lead them to Jesus. But you also have to be a little wary. You can't be gullible. You got to be wary of those who are viciously evil, immoral, or opposed to what Christianity stands for. What life has taught me, and I'm just speaking from myself, from my observations, is that these types of people, these people that really don't want to become Christians, are more likely to influence Christians towards sin than Christians are to influence them for good. That's what I've watched. See, as people of the Lord, we have the light of God. Our actions should reflect our faith. We need to live above you know, reproach morally so that we will reflect the Lord's goodness to others. This was strongly emphasized by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. What I have noticed, and this, this is very sad, and I'm not, I, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I'm, I need to say this, right? What I've noticed is sadly a majority of Christians, and I'm talking like 75 to 80% to 85%, are 100% unprepared to deal with what's thrown at them. What, what we have, and mainly in Western, I'm talking in America and Western society, is people who are believers who are intellectually saved but exper experientially lost. They have the knowledge of salvation, but they have the lifestyle of lost people. And so because of that, they have a Savior who saves them, but they don't have a Lord who protects them. Jesus, see, Jesus will save us, but our Lord will protect us. We have a lot of people who have Jesus as their Savior, but he's not their Lord. And by that, I mean, they're not the kind of person that says, my opinions do not matter anymore. Listen to me here. Listen to this. 
In other words, they haven't given up their will to God. And if they did, they would no longer have their own free will. We should be boldly confessing that we have a Lord now. And he, te- he tells me what to believe and what to think. He tells me what is right and what is wrong. He's my Lord. I submit to him and come under his authority. That's having a Lord. And see, most Christians don't have that. I mean, it's as if, you know, it's as if people put on the jersey of a Christian and go out in in the field and play, but they confuse everybody. I mean, I, I think of this term that I've heard for the last, like, I guess, 20, 30 years, really, I'm a gay Christian. And people would say, I'm a gay Christian. And I'm like, what? You're putting on the teen jersey and all you're doing is going out there and confusing people. I've never heard before this term was used. I've never heard anybody saying, I'm an adulterer Christian. I'm a lying Christian. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. That's just one, I'm a trans Christian. What? No, no, you're struggling with that sin. You're confused with that sin. You've got to get your mind right. You've got to get your flesh under control, just like people who have uh, problems with adultery, lying, stealing, murder. I mean, folks, come on. Let, let, Let me share this story, which I think speaks to this. It was the second battle of the Civil War. Tensions were volatile as troops moved into the vicinity of the first bull run. At that time, Manassas Junction was a little more than a strategic railroad crossing with rail lines leading to Richmond and Washington, D.C. These are the two capitals of the two causes, and they're now locked in this great struggle. And in between was a poor farmer. He's stuck in the middle. And as the troops approached from both directions, the farmer worried about his property being destroyed. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I get it, right? That should make sense. And he's, he, he's the neutral in this conflict. And he wanted to convey his support for both sides. So with that thought in mind, he dressed with one part of his wardrobe gray and the other part blue. So the South Army arrived first and saw the farmer's blue pants and began shooting at him. The desperate farmer kicked off his pants and waved his chestnut hat, stood up to display his gray shirt, right? So they stopped shooting. But then all of a sudden the North arrives and seeing his gray shirt and his chestnut hat, they began shooting at him from the opposite direction. And so the farmer throws down his hat, peels off his shirt and runs nearly butt naked into his barn. After this battle's over, his property was badly damaged. So he decides to move out of Virginia and get away from the conflict, vowing to never try to make everybody happy again. All he wanted was some peace of mind. Now, the story goes that he moved his residence to the neutral border state of Maryland to a docile place called Sharpsburg, also known as Antietam, which happened to be the site of the next bloodiest battle in the Civil War. Now, the moral of this story is this. This situation, like so many others we could have used, reveals a time which will come or has come to each and every one of us when neutrality is no longer possible. Trying to please everyone pleases nobody. What matters is this question. What pleases the Lord? Folks, are we to avoid the offense of truth in all subjects at all times? I mean, if, if, if so, then what exactly causes persecution, if not the conflict of ideas and opinions? The false prophet is the one who speaks and never offends people. 
The true prophet never speaks with the intent of offending, but rather with the intent to be faithful to the Lord. We have got to stop this nonsense and trying to please everybody. We have got to take a stand for the truth and refuse to bow down to the Satan's schemes, even when the culture at large turns a blind eye. Jesus told us, folks, he's persecuted. And if we're going to do what he did and take our cross daily, we are going to be persecuted too. In other words, if you're not being persecuted, then you're not doing it right. (laughs) Folks, it's crystal clear to me that over the last few years that we blend in way too much. Compared to other ideological causes, the average Christian is embarrassed by awkward conversations and controversial subjects in our culture. Hey, I'm warning you, beware, lest in trying to position yourself and prosper your career, you miss the moments that have been presented to you to be a faithful witness of salt and light. Sometimes this, you know, warfare of casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God is not the battle in your head, folks. It's the battle that's coming through someone else's mouth who is trying to propagandize you. You, That's the moment you must not back down from facing the controversial issues. You must respond in an effective, winsome way of salt and light. And in doing that, we're honoring the Lord with our sacrifices and offerings that I want and hope you can see correlate here to this book of Leviticus talking about and introducing us to bringing an offering and a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I've put together a few practical things to remind us about sacrifices and offerings and true worship. Here's one. I've heard this a lot. Good worship leaves me feeling pleased. I'm sorry, but that's wrong. The truth is good worship leaves God feeling pleased. Oh, you may be feel pleased too, but it better make sure that God feels pleased. See, unfortunately, too many Christians believe that they're the audience when in truth, God is the audience. Here's another one that I've heard. In worship, the focus is on the people up front, right? The people on the stage, the, the people singing, the choir, the playing the instruments or the, the pastor or the teacher. No, folks. In truth, The truth is, in worship, the focus is on God. Oh, here's another one. I've heard, oh, good worship happens when the music and the sermon are good. No, folks. Good worship happens when we worship in spirit and truth. Now, if the worship and the sermon worship in spirit and truth, hallelujah. See, it's easy to focus on one side or other, too, of this in spirit and truth phrase. See, some churches, some groups... Some congregations seem to focus on how excited they can get, while others will sit like bumps on a log while doctrinal truth is conveyed. Folks, we need to worship with all of our spirit and worship in the truth of the Bible's teachings. Although the Lord certainly deserves our best and we should endeavor that our worship be characterized by excellence, in the end, it's far more important that our hearts are in tune than our instruments and our voices are in tune, okay? Here's another one that I've heard. Worship happens, you know, going to the church to worship. Well, that's, that's kind of a half-truth. Because see, here's the deal. Worship is an everyday thing. 
Worship happens anytime we're open to the reality and presence of God. It, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin and I loved being outdoors. I still love being outdoors to today. And I, when I was a young guy, we did a lot of hunting up there. So here, worship may be in a tree stand on a cold November morning as you see God's creation. It may be in your living room on a Tuesday evening as you look at your family and you're filled with gratitude for God to give you such a blessing. I would contend this, that trying to generally worship publicly without having had significant times of private worship is like having the dry heaves. You're trying to bring up something that just isn't there. And along those very same lines, often people will emphasize what you, what you wear to church, right? As though the proper preparation is time in your closet picking out clothes, when in truth, the proper preparation for worship includes time in your closet. It's your prayer closet as you get your heart ready. And the last one I wanted to bring up, so many people say this, I am willing to worship if this thing takes off. Well, gosh, folks, you should say this. This is the truth. I am willing to worship if it's me and me alone. Many times (laughs) people are willing to jump on the bandwagon if a sermon or a service gets going, but we're supposed to have a passion for worship that gives us the desire to be a leader and not a follower when it comes to worship. We are to be yielding ourselves to the spirit without consideration of others' actions or motives within a worship service. We came to worship, as should be our motto, even if we're the only one really giving it our heart. I believe it's critical that we have the attitude of reverence for God in our hearts when we bring offerings and sacrifices to honor and worship the Lord. And it's okay, folks, to keep at the forefront of our minds this, this, I guess, this never-ending, like, check, if you will, on ourselves, this, right? If we are seriously seeking to honor God in our offerings and, and our sacrifices. Or are we striving to bring, you know, an honor to a man or to ourselves or to somebody else or to the very get-together, the congregation, the service itself? So... As I'm ending here, if any of these have, you know, maybe pierced you a little bit, cut you maybe to the core, just admit that and repent of that. It's, it's something we've been doing wrong and we need to admit that and change that stinking thinking. When you come to the assembly, are you looking for the giver or are you looking for the gifts? I'm going to end with this very short story. Many years ago, a not so well-known preacher substitute is for his very famous brother preacher at the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, New York. Many curiosity seekers had been coming to hear the renowned preacher speak. Therefore, when the not so well-known brother appeared in the pulpit instead of the famous brother preacher, well, some people got up and started for the doors. Sensing that these people were disappointed because he was substituting for his very well-known brother, The preacher raised his hands for silence and he announced, all of those who came here this morning to worship my brother may withdraw from the assembly. All who came to worship God may remain. I hope this inspired you today. I hope it's bringing you closer to the Lord. I hope you ruminate on it and let it pierce your heart. And let's give God all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. God bless you all. Bye. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. 
For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candacesmithyman.com, Facebook at Candace Smithyman, or Instagram at Candace Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel.